Welcome to the Film Situation Podcast. So we're so pleased to have Ben Myers on the Film Situation Podcast. Welcome, Ben. Great to be here, Zach. So I first met Ben at YoFi Festival, which shout out to YoFi. It's a really great festival, and I've been going there since the beginning, and it's really been cool to see. It. Oh, really? You've been you're an OG YoFi guy. Yeah, yeah. I think I was there in their second year in 2013. So now it's it was their 10th year this past December. And a shout out to Patty Schumann and Dave Steck, who just do, a, I think, a phenomenal job. Patty and Dave were great. YoFi was awesome and glad to meet you there. Yeah. So have you been with your short film? It was called Lone Star Love. Is that correct? A Lone Star Love. Yeah. A Lone Star Love. Yeah. I like that. It's like A Clockwork Orange instead yeah, of yeah. Clockwork Orange. Had you been to other festivals with your f- film prior to that? Oh, yeah. That... I think we've got one or two left in the run, but YoFi was capping things off for us. We had a world premiere at Austin Film Festival in 21 with the project. We took it to Boston Sci-Fi. We had a great run throughout the summer, and we local. See, we were at the Golden Door Film Festival with Bill Sorvino, and I think we did. Who's Bill Sorvino? Bill Sorvino. He's an actor director from the Sorvino family. Paul Sorvino, Mia Sorvino. Oh, cool. Is he Paul Sorvino's son? I think he's his nephew. I think cool. I have that connection, yeah, Paul's, right? Rest in peace to Paul Sorbino. Yeah. He's a great actor. Yeah, God bless. God bless. Rest in peace. Yeah, I think we did like an 18, 18 festivals or so, which I'm personally very proud of because it's like a 25-minute film, which is not easy to get programmed. That's true. That is in like the no man's land of running times for a short yeah, film. Yeah, it's a rule breaker thing to do for sure. But my my previous two films were five minutes and then previous to that was... 13, 14-minute film, which is a little bit more of a programmable spot. But honestly, when I got involved with this project, I threw that idea out the window because I just wanted to I just wanted to experiment more with a longer... I was like, can I tell a story over 25 minutes that people will watch and that can get programmed? And fortunately, it was successful for sure. I do believe that each project and film has its own sort of running time like it's hard to squeeze it into a particular running time so i feel like if you're there's certain stories that it's all dependent just on the story yeah and short film is a brilliant medium it's like poetry it's lyrical the best short films are and but i'm not that kind of a filmmaker honestly i'm not here for a two three minute short film because i'm really about dialogue driven films and character and nuance and that's why i'm really interested in episodic work and writing features and stuff like that so I just used this opportunity as a way to get, I wanted more days on set. I wanted to tell a story that kind of felt like it had a bigger breadth to it and stuff like that. And I wanted to be able to have smaller characters that we got to know a little bit, get in this journey. I love writing dialogue. I love writing scenes to be able to tell a story over that period of time. And uh, also with The Lone Star Love, it was really about like lulling the audience into a false sense of security, thinking that you're in one kind of a film and then it morphs and to take them on that journey. So yeah, 25 minute film. But it has this Black Mirror-esque vibe to it. But like I said, I'm just, I'm lucky and pleased that we were in so many great festivals with it. And we were recognized with a bunch of awards as well, a bunch of nominations, 18 festivals, 25 minutes. I can't ask for any more of that. Nice. Yeah, that is a great run, especially for such a run, that kind of running time of a film. Because you, you really don't see that. I've been to a lot of festivals and the only time I've really seen that sort of thing is if I was at Sundance one year and Spike Jones made 
a, like a half hour short film where maybe it was like 40 minute running time or something like that on the longer side. But it was Spike Jones. Yeah. It was a movie yeah. about a robot. You can do this. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know what? When I pitch it to festival festivals, I talk about, hey, this is a film that can anchor your block. And there's the film is basically about an Irish guy who moves to Texas and it's set in the near future. It's set in 2023. So here's the future is now after going into production in 19 and 20 and then starting a run in 21. But it's about this Irish guy who moves to Texas and he has this robot android character named Viva. And it's really all, it's like a social media outlet. It's like the sickest iPhone you can possibly buy in like a human form. And so there's all these ideas about this like love triangle between him and it's this will he won't, will he won't he with this really warm analog relationship with this local Texas gal who's totally not into social media and phones and all that stuff. And then his sort of incel relationship with this Android character. And my whole approach to that film was it was brought to me initially by the writer Ronan Colfer. And then I eventually got a co-writing credit on it. And there was not this love triangle element, but it was this idea of this guy being haunted and annoyed to death by this social media and getting uh, social media android and getting sucked into it and so with a film like that you're going to have all these kind of you're confronted with these classic tropes of sort of a fembot and so i wanted to subvert those things at every moment and not objectify our great sporting actress Annetta burning who played this character who just killed it she's been recognizing with several sporting actor awards so that was my mindset about it was this is a film that it's got some elements that may be familiar to you, but I wanted to create something that a combination of things that by setting it in Austin, Texas, by bringing in this Irish element to it, this fish out of water thing in Texas, so that it's got all these unique elements that make it totally different. So I think it allowed it to be able to help to be programmed in different blocks. We were in genre festivals. We were in festivals that were just about just straight drama and stuff like that. Nice. Have you ever had people how did the irish element come into play in this film because that's something that's really interesting yeah ronan colfer who was the lead actor <laughs> in the film and he wrote the original script before i was brought on board to direct the producer dd walkie had seen another film that i'd done called power out it was about getting millennials to vote in 2018 and it's a five minute little film but it's like ultra realism and it's, it's like kind of a clover field meets high maintenance thing and that had a lot of themes about social media and slacktivism and your relationship to this information. So she brought me into it and she says, hey, I wanted to make this film with this acting writer buddy of mine, Ronan. And in all honesty, I really, it's really important to me as a director to have a hand in casting. It's such an important part of the DNA of Absolutely. the film. But she was very insistent that she wanted him to play the lead. So I said, okay, let's have a little bit of read a little bit. Now he's an Irish national. He's come to New York and he's a really a great actor and a really heartfelt writer. And I said, let's hear your American accent. And this is in one of our first meetings where we're sitting down. And I'm trying to get this job, basically. And they've invited me, but this is their baby. Yeah. And I said, dude, your American accent is not really cutting the bread here. It's not selling it. It's not selling it. And authenticity is so important to me as a filmmaker. I don't want to be faking stuff. And I feel like audiences have a really low tolerance for any inauthentic element these days. Oh yeah, so I agree. So important, Completely. especially with social media. Yeah. You have to be your thing. So I was like, you know what? Let's make this character Irish. Let's make your character Irish and let's make this a little bit, let's bring that as, a, as an element to the DNA of the film. So your character will be Irish and we'll make it this fish out of water thing. So he's in this place, he's this, he has this foreign element. It's how is he interacting with this other Texas ethos and how is he going to mesh with that? 
And that kind of helped create the same duality of this analog social media world. Now we've got this Irish European guy and he's living in this Texas Austin vibe. So that was just an element that I was like, hey, this is something real that I can grab onto. And if we've got this, let's run with it. I like that, actually. Yeah, I think that's a, it's really interesting. At, for a period of time, my wife used to work at a movie theater yes. and back in the day. And I used to ask her, I was like, oh, what type of, what sort of people? I used to pay attention to, like, what kind of crowd is coming to see this movie? What kind of crowd is coming to see that movie or what are the demographic? I was just yeah, interested yeah. in who's coming out. Was it a sold out screening? Some was it older crowd? Ground data. And yeah. And she told me if it was like an Irish act actor in a film, the Irish community from New York would really turn out for the film, even if they're not playing somebody with an Irish accent. So I always thought that was cool of, I have to give it a shout out to now Irish, Irish Americans. There's a rich history of an Irish American community in New York city, but Irish nationals, people from Ireland, yeah. that is such an incredibly tight community. And coincidentally enough, around the same time, I started working with an amazing executive producer in Ireland named Stephen McCormick, and he's got a production company over there. And he started working with some talent over there, and he was looking for a fixer stateside because he was doing a production about a couple of guys named the Two Johnnies who are just really funny, talented guys. And there's a network over there called RTE, which is like Ireland's BBC. It's a national network, and they'd gotten this show over there. So coincidentally enough, completely separately from meeting Ronan and getting involved with what was then called Human Book, and then part of my influence became Alone Star Love, I'm also working on these docu-reality shows as a shooter producer going around the country working with these two Irish talents, and half the crew is Irish and half the crew is American. And the, we also, with that same production company, we did a documentary on this amazing reporter named Donnie O'Sullivan with CNN, who was at the January 6th insurrection. And so he rose to prominence with that. And uh, also Samantha Berry, who's now the editor-in-chief of Glamour Magazine. And through those experiences, I really got to see how incredible the Irish community is in New York. And actually, that's how I got connected to YoFi, because there is, YoFi had a, and Yonkers is a huge Irish community and there was a sort of offshoot festival that they were doing that I had submitted to that and Patty was like you know what this is not right for that but we totally want this in their real deal oh thing. that's pretty cool yeah I had attended that actually offshoot yeah thing yeah, it yeah, was, yeah. And it was pretty cool to see it yeah I've attended a number there because I live up in Westchester and they had also a Japanese kind of selection of films a few months ago and yeah they're doing a lot at Yofi. Yeah. And yeah, in Yonkers, and then also there's an area of the Bronx called Woodlawn near yes. the borders, Yonkers, that, that that has a really strong Irish community. Yeah. And McLean Avenue. Yeah, it's it's actually pretty cool. So how'd you first, where'd you first grow up, by the way? Oh, man. I've been in New York for the last 12, 15, 12 or so years or whatever, but I grew up all around the U.S. My dad is a captain in the U.S. Navy. Oh, okay. He's a helicopter pilot, actually. That's pretty cool. Uh, if you like the first Transformers movie, throwback here, but like the very opening scene in the desert, and there's this helicopter that changes into the scorpion thing. That helicopter is the kind of helicopter that he used to fly. So awesome. I, I grew up all around the United States, Pennsylvania, Alabama, California, Virginia, everywhere. And I moved around about every two years or so. And the crazy thing about that is usually when I moved somewhere, I knew how long I was going to be there because my dad had orders. And so I was like, I'm going to be here for 18 months. I'm going to be here for a year. I'm going to be here for two and a half years. And to know that 
I felt like I'm not really from anywhere. I'm like a federal baby. I'm not really like from the state. I don't have a hometown. I'm always the new kid. So I kind of had to be this chameleon to make friends really fast and stuff like that. And I have to admit, being from everywhere and nowhere made me like a bit of a rebel rule breaker because when you see how everything is a little bit different everywhere, like the rules of the school, the way they do stuff, even how they figure out your grades, it kind of makes you think, oh, so there are no rules because they just change everywhere you go. So what is really the deal? But it also gave me a huge amount of respect for the military community, the naval officer community, and and just like my love of democracy and these core values of the Constitution and the values that the military brings you. And my dad, though, of course, is, people ask me all the time, like, so did your dad want you to go in the military or was you really strict? And he's like, no, my dad loves movies. He loves musicals. He was so encouraging me of going off in this direction. So I couldn't be grateful for that. But yeah, long cool. story short, I'm from nowhere. <laughs> yeah, but I find that to be so interesting. I had a feeling as soon as you said you moved around all over the place that you're going to say that uh, your dad or something was in the military. Yeah. But I wonder if, was that really formative for you as a filmmaker just because you were always observing? Just going somewhere to a new place and observing things and just looking at things from that sort of perspective, did that kind of, does that sort of tie into perhaps your motivation of wanting to become a filmmaker. You know what? I never really thought about that, but I definitely think that is true because everything is so freaking interesting when you move to a new place. Even if you move to what you know, people grow up in this town, they live there for their whole life. The newest new kid moved there when he was in second grade. He's been there for 10 years or something like that. And so everybody takes everything for granted to a little bit. You know, I moved to Pennsylvania. I'm like, what's a Wawa? You know what I mean? Everything is new and I'm so curious about everything. And every time I go somewhere new, there's something new to learn. I moved to San Diego and it's, there's rattlesnakes in my backyard. Everybody's used to it. I'm like, what the heck is this stuff? So being folk, going new places, being hyper-focused on details and meeting people that sound different, that live different lives, that eat different food. People think America is one thing. America is 50 little countries all over Absolutely. the place. Yeah, about 10 years ago, it was actually back in 2012, so going on 11 years ago, which is nuts. I had the opportunity to be one of the DPs. They had almost, there was like a group of us on this nationwide documentary called Race Across America, where we followed a bike racer. It was a 3,000 long bicycle race that started off in California and ended up in Maryland. Oh, that's actually. beautiful. Yeah, it was amazing. And so I got a chance to travel throughout the whole country, and we went through Monument Valley in Utah, and just... Saw so many beautiful things, and it was really incredible. There's nothing like traveling across the country. I did it twice when I was a little kid, just like we had to make a move across the country for the military thing. So I drove with my dad had already made the move because he already start. I drove with my grandmother and my mother. And then recently, and I was like a little kid when I did that. And then recently, over the pandemic, my, my wife's family is from Seattle. And we, they don't get to see each other that much because distance and timing and work and life. And when it was looking like, wow, okay, this is like late 2020, the fall of 2020. It was like, all right, m we're not going to fly there because masks, COVID, no, it was not a thing, no vaccines. Yeah. And I was like, all right, it's important for you to see your family. Let's just, let's drive there. Let's drive there and we'll make it a road trip and we'll go across the north side of the country and we'll stop at all the national parks. And so make sure we don't kill your parents and give them COVID. We will camp and we will just live in our, out of our car and camp and make our way across the country and keep ourselves in this little COVID-free bubble and that was like a 12-day, 13-day thing. And that was the most incredible experience. And it just reminded me, like, how much this country has to offer. Nice. Is your wife involved in filmmaking as well? She is, yeah. We both met as actors. I think our, like, 
our first thing together was like we were uh, we acted together in Into the Woods. I was the baker and the baker's wife in college. I cast her. I directed a production of Equus. And I cast her in that. And she was an actor for many years. And then she transitioned into editing. She actually edited A Lone Star Love. She's edited a handful of my films. I really should be probably working with other editors, but she's amazing. And she's really gifted as a technician, but as a storyteller. She comes from acting, so she brings that background. And the last couple of years, she's been really involved in PBS. And now she's a producer there at PBS. Nice. And so what first drew you into filmmaking? Were you, like, really into cinema as a kid? <laughs> like... I almost was a little self-conscious younger because there's so many people who are so into movies as kids, like making movies, like they've got the camcorder. And I knew a bunch of kids in high school that were like making their own little tiny features on nothing with getting in their backyard and stuff like that. Or they're into the AV club. And I was theater all the way. I'm writing plays. I'm producing little plays. I, I wrote a book t to a musical. I was so focused on theater and acting is the base of everything for me. That's where everything sprang from. But I had the opportunity to go to Hofstra University on Long Island and I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do and Hofstra was great because great theater program, great TV program, great film program, great dance program. I was doing a lot of dancing there. And when I went there and I looked at what was going on in their amazing theater program, I just felt, okay, a lot of these kids that are going to that program, a lot of this stuff is new to them. They maybe got involved with it in their senior year, and this is great. I think I want to do this. I want to be an actor. I want to go I want to go to New York, and I want to do this. And for me, I was like, I have a lot of experience doing this. I've done a lot of, I love, yeah, the shows in school, but I've done some professional shows, and I just had a lot of exposure. I, I read a butt ton of plays, and I was like, you know what? My parents are going to spend all this money, send me this nice school. I should probably learn something about something I don't know anything about. So... That's why I chose, I got a BS in TV video film and I was super, I didn't know Jack, I was super green and I, I really learned from the ground up. So it was really, again, about my curiosity. Let me learn about something that I don't know anything about. And then it kind of became a two-pronged thing. I loved movies as a kid. My dad loves movies. Treasure Sierra Madre, uh, it's an old film, but we watched that over and over again. And my dad can name any movie and any actor in any old movie. He's really, for a military dude, he's a super duper film buff. Really big influence on me, actually, in that way. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So when so when I when I got in there, I was like, okay, let me take this curiosity, this ferocious curiosity, I'd like to bring to any creative project, and just so w with that as well, it's like, all right, as a business thing, it's if I do theater and. I don't mean this as any disrespect to anyone involved in theater, but if I do theater, it happens once and it's done. I cannot share that work with people if the production ends, if my, my vision is gone, my acting work is there. And that's a magical thing. Don't get yeah. me wrong. That's, a, that's an experience that you cannot duplicate. But I was like, you know what? If I can make films, I can keep them around. I can show them to people. They can be out in the world. They can be there forever. C cinema's forever. Cinema is forever. And I've definitely had that conversation with actor friends of mine. So what you're saying here on the Film Situation podcast is that cinema is a superior medium to a place. Cinema is perhaps a more indelible medium. I'm not going to wage that war. But, uh, you know, it was just, again, about something that I had never, I didn't know about. And, look, there's an incredible amount of complexity in film. So many different pieces of the puzzle, so many roles. As much as acting and acting for the stage is, like, a never-ending craft of improvement, I don't think I could ever learn enough about filmmaking which is okay great awesome. yes i say the same exact thing it's like a lifetime of yes. of mastery it's like you you could learn 
the basics, but then you spend the rest of your life just going and deeper in. The other thing about it is there are as many ways to make a movie and as many kinds of movies as there are people in the world. That's right. Yeah, you know? yeah. it's a good way to think about it. So I guess tell us a little bit about the production of A Lone Star Love. Yeah. Was how, was it like, it was a 25-minute running time. Was it a 25-page script? When I got the script, it was like 12 pages. Okay. And so you expanded it. I expanded it, which, hey, it worked out, but it was a gamble yeah. at the time. And one of the ways that the script expanded was there was this third character, Layla, who's this Austin, Texas native. And she was the producer of the project. She's from Austin. And just like I did with Ronan, who is actually Irish, I was like, let's bring... She, first of all, she was into the script because she personally is not into social media. She bar She's not on Instagram. She's not on all this stuff. She issues it. And I was like, your point... And that's why she wanted to make the film. I was like, your point of view is so authentic and real and you totally have this you're like you've got austin written all over you let's put that in the movie and then i had been shooting in new york for my my last two films that i really had a serious hand in or shot in new york and i was like this is an amazing canvas it's a beautiful city but it's expensive and difficult to shoot in new york city and to get the scope that you want for sure even and you can point your camera outside and there's beautiful buildings but a lot of times up-and-coming filmmakers end up shooting in little apartments. And I was like, I want to shoot in a different canvas. I want to paint with different visuals here. So what if we shot this in Texas? She said, I have a lot of resources in Texas. We could get a lot of locations. We could work with a lot of local crew because Austin is a little film town in its own right. Austin Film Festival, South By, Austin Revolution, et cetera, et cetera. There are definitely people that have skills and talent. So... We went down there to shoot, and then it's, let's not just go down there to shoot. Let's make this film about being in Texas. Let's use the resources that we have in that same way again. So that's how it started in terms of going down to Austin and shooting down there. We went down with five crew. We flew down. It was like a five, six-day shoot. We had like a six-day contingency day that we ended up using like an hour of. And uh, it was just a fabulous experience. We had an amazing community. The people, of, there's a little credit at the end. It says, and thank you to the people of Texas because the warmth down there, particularly in Austin, Texas is a big state, but Austin, the, the people just opened up for us and gave us a lot of resource and locations that we would not have gotten otherwise. Yeah, I like the scene where you met her character's family and just the sort of the awkwardness of him bringing the AI or like the robot, I don't know how you would... Yeah, it. yeah, it's this, uh, yeah, like the social media. And we really wanted to push away any idea of AI because, right. and I think we did that pretty well because it's it's just this like tool and it also helps put the onus on the character. But yeah, that, that scene is, and I maybe I look a little different, but that gentleman in the cowboy hat, the brother, that's me. That's really, yeah. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 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 I put it on the Texas accent. You guys be the judge if it worked or not. It absolutely worked. I had no idea that it was you. Yeah. So I'm a union actor as well. Yeah. I, mean, I still keep that, that dream alive as I continue my work as a writer director and such like that. So I do work professionally as an actor, but that was, that was actually a really cool opportunity because we had this amazing house, big house. And I had conceived of this character who was going to be Layla's brother. I was going to play Layla's brother. And she was going to bring her boyfriend over and she was like, not tell her boyfriend that she was coming over to meet his brother. So he's caught off guard. And I was thinking of this sort of trucker hat guy, chill PBR dude. And there was going to be this dynamic difference. You were going to have this kind of, hey, I've got this big radio job. This, I'm an Irish. I'm European. I've got this giant flex and having this really expensive robot that's like really hard to buy and stuff like that. 
And this was going to create a conflict between these two characters because I was like, maybe not going to be that well off. I was going to be like, what does this guy think he is? And then I get to this location and it's a, it, um, it's a big house. It's a huge, giant, nice house with a pool and all this stuff and rooms and rooms and rooms. Okay, I'm lucky to have this. And we, when we first landed in Texas, we did a quick scout to all our locations and then we were going to start shooting the next day. When I get to this house, I'm like, this is not going to work at all. Like, this, I got to do a rewrite because this character cannot live here. So I flipped it. Instead of that character having the lower status to Ronan's character, I made him have a higher status. I made him this big, full-of-himself cowboy character, this fake bravado. And that was a really fun experience because and I was like, look, I, I want to put this place on camera. Like, this is going to add something to the film. It's going gonna, it's gonna to bring a little bit more of a money look to the project. So we worked out the outfit differently, got the cowboy boots, got the black hat, full of himself. And because rewrites went well, but really on the day, we're feeling the scene out. We're rewriting on the fly. And that was the only time in the film we really had to do that. But listen, it happens. When I'm sure you've seen that footage of Stanley Kubrick on the set of The Shining. He's retyping the script. If it happens on the highest levels, then you know, why not do it on an indie level? Got to work with yourself, with what you have because you don't want to tell a lie on film. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting because it's a robot and obviously I'm sure it's intentional, but I felt empathetic to, I felt bad for her character when she was put in the closet. Yeah, at one point, Layla, Layla's character says to the Scottish guy, Ronan, who doesn't expect, who's not into this social media stuff at all, who's not into this technology, can you just put it away in a closet or something? Where we're reminded again that this guy's having a kind of almost an intimate relationship with this. He doesn't have a lot of friends and he's like, this robot is my pal here. We're reminded again, this is just an inanimate object. So he literally puts her away in a closet. And at that one point he's feeling, it's like a safety blanket to him and he's feeling uncomfortable at the party and he like sneaks away to go and just have a conversation with a robot in the closet. And the robot's not giving him anything. He's like, hey, what do you want to see on this social media stuff? What do you think of this video? And he's like, oh, that's funny. That's cute. So how are you doing? And it's just, that's the moment where you guys are like, oh, this dude is not in a healthy place. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was really cool. And I thought it was, you did some really creative things with the robot and just that, the actress that, that played the robot as far as the different voice inflections and different things on the recaps of the social media stuff. I thought that was really great stuff. Annette is brilliant. Yeah. So it gave a chance to show her range. Exactly. If you're going to have this actress trapped in this performance of this robot character, which you have to nail because we're not doing a whole lot with makeup. We did... In Post in the Eye and Da Vinci, we changed her eye color to this kind of purplish thing. With doing that, instead of doing it with contacts, created this depth in her eye. Really painstaking work by our DP, Nicholas Richter. But if you're going to have an actor play a robot that's so good, it's can we find opportunities to show her off a little bit? So if you have this awesome Android character, like you can get a phone call from that character and that character will speak to you and it will sound like this other person's voice. Or if it's going to read a text message, it can... it's. We've got all this technology. We can infer what the thing should sound like. We know the profile of the person that sent this. So she is like straight up and then she turns into this other relaxing thing and then goes back into it. And those are the moments that like the audience, it's a little magic trick for the audience, yeah. a little entertainment value. Yeah. I think that's important to, to keep the magic in cinema. Yeah. I think that's, it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately because now, especially when there's a proliferation of just YouTube and we're getting blitzed with content and some of it's really good. Sometimes I sit there and watch YouTube videos and especially the younger generation, they will, they'll watch YouTube over television. 
so my whole way of thinking nowadays is what justifies why something is cinema? Like, yeah. why should this be cinema mm -hmm. versus a YouTube video versus mm -hmm. this other thing? And I feel like some of those things are that kind of magic sort of elements that, that you're talking about. I think it was George Lucas, I think he said that movie making is all special effects. Not just because there's a robot moving around in it or you've got a hologram on screen, but movie movies are a special effect. Movies are an illusion. And you're always, you're just working the audience a little bit. There's content and we live in a world of content. But I think that's what makes a movie is when you're inviting, when you're inviting the audience, not a suspension of disbelief because you're dealing with realism from my kind of work. But when you're inviting the audience to have this magical experience and you're whooshing them into this space and place, that's, that to me, that's what cinema is. I agree. And also it's like hypnosis mm -hmm. in a way, because when it's done the right way, somebody will say, I was really into that movie. What does that mean? They're, they're into the hypnosis. You get of the lost film. in a movie. You get lost in the film. I, mean, I think that's why everybody loves Avatar, right? I think people are surprised because the movie came out in 2009 and it's okay. This is like Dances with Wolves. It's, there's stories, we, but people, this movie's killing it right now. And it's because people like to be in that world. They want to get lost in a place and, I don't blame people for wanting to be transported from our reality right now, for sure. Yeah. But people love that, and that's what cinema can do for people and get lost in there. And if you can do that just a little bit, and you can do that with a story that is very realistic, you know, about characters that are very grounded, because if you can create a vibe that people want to be in, I think that's what really draws people to movies these I days. I say that lately all the time. Is it's about creating a vibe, because I really try to study when somebody's a master filmmaker, what are they doing? What is it that makes them good versus somebody that's bad. And I feel like the great filmmakers could create a vibe that's very intentional. Yeah, yeah. What's some of your favorite parts of the process of filmmaking? Working with actors is hugely important to me. And I feel like all the processes of production and pre-production are all about creating the space to create something magic and unexpected. So my favorite part about filmmaking, even beyond creating an image that is moving and meaningful and is filled with meaning um, is working with actors. I love people and they're so freaking interesting and they have so much to give and actors have so much to give. Actors are beautiful people. They, they are the thing that brings your film to life. Absolutely. No, so without question. So that is the part of the process that I personally get the most joy out of. And because I feel as an actor coming from that background, doing that work myself and even being in, directing myself in projects where I'm in this and I have another pilot that's just starting its festival run that has premiere at Catalyst Story Institute and one Best of Fest at New Jersey Web Fest. It's like a 22-minute sci-fi time travel pilot thing. Even when I'm not in a scene, I feel like I'm with the actors. I feel like I'm part of this with them. I'm going on the, I'm asking them to trust me. I feel like a very intimate connection with my actors. So working with the actors and having those moments together and creating something spontaneous and creating that space where they can do their best work and feeding off the gifts that they're giving, they're bringing to the process and listening to them, what they want to do. I did this amazing project in 2017 called The Vanity with this great actor called Kapal Devan. And he's doing all kinds of great, amazing work on TV. I think he's in, and there's a TV project, Anne Rice's The Vampire. Oh, project. okay. Yeah. Is he one of the yeah, main yeah, characters? He's, he's, got a, he's got a little media, little role there. And uh, so I, I, we're doing this scene, and it's a horror movie, and there's this nightmare sequence in it. And uh, it's in an attic, and he's having this moment with his wife. And it's a very symbolic, tiny little, short little scene that he's waking up from. And he comes to me, he's like, and we're in this 
creepy old house and this wooden attic with these wooden floors and these I feel like I should have my shoes off I feel like my shoes should he's getting very spiritual about it he's getting he's, he's thinking about the scene he's, and I was like and I didn't even that didn't was not in my headspace at all and as we started to talk about it where that feeling was coming from I was like yes you need to take your shoes off here yeah. and then you need to not be wearing shoes in this scene and it created this beautiful little intimate visual metaphor but it's just another example of listening to your actors or creating a space where they feel comfortable collaborating. It's so in, important. In the filmic process. It's so incredibly important. It's just environment in general. Yeah. With filmmaking, I, arguably with anything in life, even your own personal workspace, mm. if you're, whether you're a tax accountant or, or whatever, like I feel is important and really fundamental to what you're doing, but especially on a film set and especially mm -hmm. working with actors and just that dynamic of them trust. I'm mean, them yeah. trusting you as a director. Somebody had me, I don't come from an acting background. I come from an editing background mm -hmm. and I come from just studying directing like early on and just being behind the scenes. And just, I was one of those kids just filming stuff. My dad gave me like a high eight camera when I was a kid and I just yes. loved it. And I was always like rigging together VCRs and stuff like that. And just, editing things but i do find that but i do love working with actors and recently somebody hired me for a voiceover thing i was like doing a voiceover i guess they heard the podcast and they thought it would be good to do the voiceover you have a good sound <laughs> thank you i was doing the voiceover for this documentary and i was like whoa i'm taking direction from somebody and it's the first time i've ever been in that position and it even just something as simple as that gave me a new sort of understanding of that level of what it takes to trust somebody that's directing you. Yeah. Is that person, do they have your back? Do they have like your best interest? Do they want to show you in the best light? Are they going to mm -hmm. be kind and empathetic about mm -hmm. it and empathy about it? Now, I feel like I'm a sort of empathetic person mm. and with my actors, I, get, I really, I get that from you. Thank you. <laughs> I try. Although I do think it's a different dynamic. Not that I'm like, like a hard ass necessarily with my crew, but I feel like almost with your crew, it's like a military operation. I, it is, but it is exactly, I compare it to that all the time because the efficiency, the organization, we all march together. Absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes it's like a military operation. Sometimes it's like a bank robbery. I have definitely made some movies where we're robbing banks for sure. <laughs> and especially where you, if you're filming stuff without permits and or whatever. But I feel like I always say with your crew, it's like a military operation, but your actors, they can't know about that. That There has yes. to be a separation about that. They can't feel like it's a military operation. Yeah. That's a whole different thing. Dynamic. You're not trying to trick people, but you're just pre preserving their space. Exactly. And yeah, the worst thing I could feel like is if they're feeling rushed or if they're feeling like maybe even worse than that is that they can't try something like you, you said, you know, about the shoes. And I'm not saying s sometimes that you might have a different direction mm. or a really different vision for a specific purpose as the director that will supersede some sort of idea like that's just it's not working out but at least for them to be heard or at least for them to try something. Even Quentin Tarantino said, he's a lot of times I won't give specific direction on the first sort of take mm. with the actor because I want to see what they're bringing to the table. And he said, maybe sometimes he'll do that on even on an audition because he said they might try something really specific that I didn't think of. 
And I think that's actually interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm, we're talking about this stuff, and I'm like spitting this stuff, but honestly, this is something that has only really been, I've really gotten my brain around lately in my work. This is something that took me, this is like a deep thing that took me, it sounds pretty simple. It sounds like, yeah, that's what filmmaking is all about. But it, it took me so long especially in this world where we're obsessed with success and am I going to make it? Am I going to be able to make a living out of this stuff? And am I going to be able to make something that looks good that's going to get enough attention? And the really special thing is, okay, all of this stuff is in place, but what's this magic that we're creating? And it's only been in the last couple of years and the last couple of projects in my work where I'm like, no, that is the thing that we are doing. And I think people come from film school and they get really hung up on their writer, director, auteur vision and they create a little box that they're trying to create happen. They're trying to achieve. Create happen. I know what you mean. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice little dash there. Yeah. And create happen things. And they get so hung up on that vision. And of course, filmmaking is a collaborative process. People say that all the time. I don't think they really understand. I don't think they really understand what that means. I'm still learning what that means. And the only way you learn that stuff, the only way you learn the importance of creating that space for actors, the only way you learn the value of what real collaboration means is experience, humbling yourself, practice, working with different artists, growing to rise to that occasion, making yourself worthy of being able to work with these other people that have great talents, growing yourself in that way. It seems intuitive, but it's something that takes practice, work, and just trial and error to get to have these personal epiphanies that this is the space that we're trying to create. This is what matters. Absolutely said. And yeah, the collaborative nature of filmmaking, filmmaking is probably my favorite part of just working with a team. And then just, it's the one art form that is the most collaborative in my opinion, because there's so many elements, so many moving parts and without the collaboration of everybody, it's, it's, you can't just be a one person army doing this stuff and yeah. expect that you're going to get great results. You have to have enough ego to believe in what you're doing, to get something to happen, to make something out of nothing. But you also have to step back and go, ego doesn't serve the process to make something beautiful. Once you're, once you've gotten those pieces in place, it is about listening most, most importantly. And I'm a talker. Like I'm going a mile a minute here. Like that. I have a lot to say in life. I like people that are good talkers. <laughs> I think that's why I started the podcast and sometimes I just like listening but the most important thing is listening it really is you get on because if you don't listen then you miss the really good stuff that people are throwing at you so crucial yeah and especially I think especially as a director because you have to have being an observer is so fundamental into being a filmmaker in my opinion De Niro talks about like how much we project on actors when we watch them he could sit here and he could do nothing. And the context of the scene, you're going to think, oh, he's sad, he's happy, whatever. He's not moving his face. And I think that directors get hung up on their ego a lot and they think, I'm going to talk, I'm going to, I'm going to describe this in all the different ways. I'm going to talk, I'm going to say stuff that doesn't even help you, but it exists in my head. And really a lot of times less is more. And if you just give somebody yeah. a little thing, I'm, of course, I'm not giving you less is more now. No, I'm agreeing because I, to me, I, like I said, I've studied the masters. Paul Thomas Anderson, if, a, if an actor is giving him something that he likes, he's not going to give them a lot of direction. Yeah. Like he was talking about directing Boogie Nights and he was like, William H. Macy, I didn't have to give him any direction at all. And that was really formative for me starting out because I was like, oh, you don't have to necessarily overly talk. If somebody's giving you something that you want, that's good enough. Yes. That's better than t 
talking too much, and then yes. it's they're getting cerebral and about it, the process. It's kind of like I have this vision like you're in a pond in Central Park, and it's a quiet day, and there's no water, and you put this little toy boat with this little sail on it, and everybody thinks you gotta, but really you just have to, just a little thing, and just a little thing, and then that then a breeze carries that boat, and suddenly. You just gave it an idea about where it, or that it even needed to go. And now it's sailing away and doing something beautiful that you were going to put all this breath into. And That's a great analogy. It. I love that. What do you find that you like the least about the filmmaking process? Oh, God. <laughs> I like the least. Jesus. I could tell you what I like the least. Please. Inspire um, me. Is worrying about where in this totally state speaks to where I am. Because Martin Scorsese doesn't have to worry about, is this wire on set or something? Like, I hate just, not that I could be a gearhead. I like lenses and I like the tactile nature of filmmaking. But I hate having to worry about so many physical items. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I totally, I get that. I get that. I think sometimes you find yourself in a pressure situation where you feel like if, you know, it's a, maybe it's one of your biggest days on the show. And you've got a big location. You've got the most people you're going to have on set. You've got the most logistics. You've got the most extras. And you feel like if we don't get this, if this day doesn't go the way it needs to go, everything's going to crash and burn. And that's, a, that's not a very specific one. That's more of a feeling. But like that panic feeling of you feel like you have to nail this at every, everything has to go right or else everything's going to fall apart. I hate that. But I don't know. Dislike. See, I'm okay with that because I live in a constant state of impending doom. <laughs> that makes, to an extent, that does make good cinema to keep on the edge. But I, mean, <laughs> I would say it's, there are so many tools for up-and-coming filmmakers to create now. But at the same time, if you want to take stuff, to really take stuff seriously, to really break through and get noticed, you have to have good financing in place. You have to have good partners. And I think that if anything, the thing that I hate is that, can, and you can have, you can have projects that die on the vine because you you lo you want to make this thing. You do need the resource that it takes to make this thing, and you don't want to say goodbye to it. But you have to know that without the right fuel to this thing, it's not going to go down the road. So true. So I do hate that. I do hate that money is the thing that we need to make movies. But this is show business. This is show business, and anyone who is just trying to make movies that's great but you can't really make really great art unless you're willing to enter in show business where it's like hey i gotta sell a ticket if someone doesn't believe this movie is going to make money it's it, maybe it's because it's not good enough for people to like give a crap about it you know what i mean so in, in a sense having the economic challenge to filmmaking helps you raise the bar for yourself about how to make something good enough that everybody was like, yeah, here's my money. Let's make this movie. I believe in this. Said, I, that's something I also think about. And I also think about the fact that, first of all, Jack Nicholson once said that money for the filmmaker is what paint is for the artist. And I thought that was really interesting Yeah, I, when yeah. I saw him say that. I like how we're getting in all the big heavy quotes. Yeah. We're, getting, we're, getting, we're pulling in all the heavies to paint this tale. That's good. <laughs> yeah. That's good. So I guess moving on, to our second portion of the podcast where we discuss a couple of your favorite movie scenes mm. of all time. And you told me ahead of time, one of them was Star Trek First Contact. Yes, yes, this film Star Trek First Contact. You, are you a Star Trek fan? Are you familiar with the oof? I'm familiar with it. I like it, but I'm definitely not like a Trekkie. What is that what they're called? Yeah, they're called, yeah. I, wouldn't, I don't wear like ears and stuff like that. <laughs> but again, my, my father was a big influence on me when it comes to cinema. And my grandfather grew up watching the original series. 
and he taped every episode of Star Trek Next Generation when it came out first run. And I was a kid, I'm watching this on reruns, it's like late 80s, early 90s, the show's on, and I get this box of VHS tapes. It's like the original binging. I'm, I've got no DVDs, I've got a, fir- a, a box of VHS tapes that are being taped on from the shows running on TV, and I watched them over and over again. So I fell in love, and my dad, Captain, Pilot, kind of... Picard looks like my dad a little bit, both losing their Interesting. Hair. Um, yeah. So I think that there was that connection. And he's such a stoic leader. So anyway, I do love Star Trek. And that film, The Next Gen, Star Trek First Contact, is it's largely considered one of the better Star Trek movies, certainly the better ones of that cast. And it had a $45 million budget. In 1996, I felt I feel like that's pretty huge for 1996. I mean, that's decent size. Yeah, that is decent size. It made 146 million at the box office. A hit. Yeah, directed by Jonathan Frakes, also an actor. Yeah, Frakes, who was very familiar with the series, he plays Riker. He plays he's an actor in the film. He plays the second in command, the guy with the beard, and uh, yeah, all the original cast. What's great about that movie is it's all the original cast from the series. So this is almost like another big entry, and the plot of this film revolves around these big bad characters called the Borg, and they were a big fan favorite that was introduced in the series. So one thing that this film has going on is there's so much backstory already in place, and it's the third installment to a two-parter that they did where Captain Picard gets taken by these Borg. They're these automatons that are part of this collective. They have no personality. They're all like part of this hive mind, and in that two-part episode... He's captured by them and assimilated by them. And so now you've got this like crazy thing where our captain's being taken away and he's like confronting us and everything like that. So there's this amazing two-parter. And this film, Star Trek First Contact, the main conflict, obviously the, the Borg are backed and they are, they've actually gone back in time to try to like mess up everything that's going on with humans and trying to go back to when humans are for inventing faster than light travel and the warp travel, which is which the first warp flight is the thing that gets the attention of these Vulcans. And they go, oh, this little crappy little planet of humans who are in the middle of a chaotic post-Third World War nuclear thing. These are not worthy of being communicated with. But then they see us use this technology, and they see the humans are ready to go explore the world. And so they come down, and they say, hello, we're aliens. There's aliens in the world. And they make first contact. But the Borg are going to try to like erase that and stop them from becoming the Federation, and stop them from destroying them in the future. Now, Captain Picard, having had this traumatic experience of being assimilated with the Borg, I'm getting a deep, y'all getting deep. I love it, yeah. In this, he has this vendetta against them, personal vendetta. And also because of that personal connection, when there's this big space battle at the beginning, they're like, you're not going to be involved in this big offensive because we think you are going to be too personally connected. And then everybody in the space battle gets wiped out, and they're the only ship left. And the scene that I called your attention to, Free Woodard plays a character from like the early, early back in time when Earth has not discovered faster than light travel. And she's on the ship up there. So there's this kind of, again, fish out of water idea of her. These people are from the future and humans are so evolved and they've moved away from war and all that stuff that's going on. And there are uh, factious conflicts on Earth. And now we all get along together. All humans are under one, one thing and everything like that. And Captain Picard is this very stoic character. And this, he's had this trauma and now he is reacting emotionally and he wants vengeance on these folks. He wants to hurt them. And this is a pivotal scene where his crew is insisting that they blow up the Enterprise 
And this is going to be because the Borg are on the Enterprise. The last Borg queen is on there. So if we just abandon the Enterprise, we'll, you'll win everything. And he's like, no, I'm not letting go of the ship. I want to, he says, I will make them pay for what they've done. And it's this, the whole movie emotionally like pivots on that scene. Everything after that is we're solving everything up. And I like how the Worf says that if you were any other man, I'd kill you where you stand. I would kill you where you stand. <laughs> That's yeah. a good impression. Yeah. And then Picard says, Get out of, get off of my bridge. Get off my bridge. Yeah. You know? and they, so they have this conflict and, and then the crew's ready to like, okay, I guess we're going to do this. And, and the Alfred Woodard characters, like, you, if we have a way to blow up the ship, let's do it. So they go and they have this conversation and she confronts him, which is a great moment. I picked this scene because it's a meaty scene. Patrick Stewart is this Shakespearean actor and she makes this offhanded references, but she's Captain Ahab has to go hunt his whale. Yeah. I like the Moby Dick analogy. I think, I thought that was really it's poignant in the scene. It's what's going on in the film, but it also, it, it grabs him because he is such a literary guy and he looks at these learned kind of stoic thing, this literary analysis, and it snaps him back and it gives him a moment to realize, oh, I am being Ahab. I am doing this. And she's, actually, I never read it. And he, <laughs> so it gives him a second. Captain Ahab did this and he blah, 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 and he did that. And it gives him a second to really realize, like back off the cliff and realize that he's taking his crew down the wrong direction. And I picked this scene because I love the sci-fi sensibility. It really, it's a character-driven sci-fi. Yeah, yeah, there's these cybernetic creatures. They're trying to figure out how they can augment their weapons and go back in time travel, da 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 all this stuff. But it's about how these characters are interacting. And that's what I try to do with the, my pilot. Zero Method is this crazy sci-fi world but it's about the stakes between these little characters, this intimate little kind of drama where there's this real big world sci-fi complication. But that's a meaty scene. Yeah, it was a good one. I really enjoyed it. It made me want to go and watch the entire film, As someone which I haven't seen before. Yeah, okay, yeah. So yeah. I, I was just, I'm curious, what were your impressions of the scene? It was really strong. I like things that transcend their genre. So somebody doesn't have to be a fan of Star Trek. Somebody doesn't have to be a fan of sci-fi to understand just the dynamics of the characters in that scene and to me that's what's actually powerful because it's a metaphor that I feel like we could all learn from or reflect in our own lives because they say that vengeance is a poison mm -hmm. I might be botching this quote but it's a pill that you end up swallowing and poisons yourself yes and I think that is so true that's incredibly true all of us have things that we get upset about or get hung up on, and then that's a question of, is it our ego that's upset? Could we take ourselves outside of the situation and look at it with perspective? And I think that's why it's actually a really good scene. And this is, yeah. a, for its time, you mentioned with the numbers, it's a sci-fi blockbuster, essentially. And there's all kinds of cool action stuff in that, that happens in it, and they look badass and everything like that. But that scene is just two actors just going for it, just acting their hearts out. And it's like, man... I wish I wrote that scene. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. There's lots of scenes in, in, in movie making. Every once in a while you see something that's like, damn, that's good. That's got all the pieces I want in it. I'm giving my actors something to do. I've got these, he's got this visual metaphors where he, he, she says, she says Jean-Luc, blow up the damn ship. And he says, no. And he's got this gun in his hand and he's angry and he smashes this glass case that has all these golden models of these ships. And it becomes this visual metaphor about his, how his anger is going to destroy everything that the Federation has built. And so not only do we have a scene that 
is turning the whole plot. It's the moment where the whole plot turns and where we can now we have the tools to move forward and start to resolve this fourth act. But it's done because of who these characters are fundamentally, character that you've known for 10 years on the series, and they managed to just put in this, no, I don't know, it's debatable how subtle it is, but this little visual metaphor as well. I love I'm loving I'm doing a watch a Better Call Saul right now. Love Better Call Saul. Love it. Great great writing directing. Oh my god. Uh, Breaking it's Bad incredible. obviously, but it's so filled with all of these visual metaphors and I think it can be very difficult to do them in a subtle way and it's a very fine line between I didn't get that. Why was why were there ants all over that ice cream cone? What were they trying to do there? And oh yeah. Duh. Of course that's what they're doing. So it's it, visual yeah. metaphors are a powerful tool. Yeah. Got to use them subtle though. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, just, yeah, sidebar, love Better Call Saul. Yeah. It's, it was just so strong. Can't get enough of that. Yeah. Okay, so speaking of things I wish I wrote, I wish I wrote the next scene, which is No Country for Old Men. Yes. So it's the coin toss scene. Let's talk a little bit about that film. I guess give us a little bit of an intro. If somebody hasn't seen No Country for Old Men what are you doing listening to this podcast? <laughs> Stop hey, it immediately and watch pause, that film. Go watch that two-hour plus movie and then come back here and we'll have lots to say about it, yes. Yeah, so there will be a spoiler. Maybe not, and it's not really tied into the rest of the film. But yeah, let's talk about the film. Yeah. Directed by the Coen brothers. Yeah, Coen brothers film. This might be their greatest work, in my opinion. I think it, did it win Best Picture? I feel like it was certainly nominated. It won a Picture. lot that year. Yeah, mm. Josh Brolin, I think, was nominated beautiful movie based on a book it was the same year as there will be blood i remember that yeah like they were competing for that's a heavy like, hitter yeah and they were both shot in marfa texas if i'm not oh that could yeah, yeah. that could very well be I, okay so no country for old men the theme of the film is is the world a terrible yeah one best picture in 2008 yeah. by the way yeah. and it won best adapted screenplay javier yeah. bardem won one best supporting actor yeah and ethan and joel cohen won best director Roger Deakins won. Oh, no, no. Okay. Roger Deakins was a nominee for Best Cinematography. That, I can't believe he It took him a long win. time to win. Yeah. Great things. Wow. No no Country is, it's, it's a relatively simple story. It's basically a gangland kind of a film about a character who stumbles on this drug deal gone bad, and he comes upon this money, and he's like, this money could change my life, but if I take this money, I'm taking a real shot because people are going to come after me. And then there's this sort of psychopathic, sociopathic murder for hire character, Anton Chigurh, that's played by Javier Bardem. He's so, he might be one of the greatest, he might be the number one villain, all-time villain for me on screen. He is super creepy. He's super yeah. creepy in this movie. And actually, he's got this crazy, queer kind of bob haircut. And then I, there's famously a conversation with him, him between Joel and Ethan Cohen. Is this going to work? And they're like, trust me, it works. And then it makes it totally much, works. It's a really iconic look. Yeah. This scene is, it's not huge, hugely impactful on the plot. It's That's more right. of revealing like the themes of the film. He goes in, he gets gas. And I think it was Gene Jordan is this character actor that's this gas station attendant. He was so good in it. So good. And he's been doing work forever. You, If you don't know the name, you know the face. He's one of those guys that's going to live in infamy on cinema forever. I got to invite him on the podcast. Bring, yeah. yeah, bring Gene in. And so basically this scene is he's going and paying for his gas. And he starts, Javier Bardem character, starts giving this gas station attendant a hard time. And he's just, he's basically just screwing with him. Yeah, you know? he says, he's, oh, the gas station owner is saying, 
oh, I see that you're from Dallas. And he's basically saying, what business is that of yours? Yeah, and he could see, he can sense. What I love is, I love performances where you could just see what the person is thinking. Like without him changing necessarily, he's saying, oh, I didn't really mean anything by it. That was his tone, but you could see in his eyes like, oh shit. Yeah, and the This is somebody that maybe is a problem. You could see immediately that he understands the magnitude of it's that, how much of a problem this could be. It's that shift. And that's what makes the scene so fucking good. It's just the tension is just so palpable in the scene. It is so tense. It is so tense. And what I love, and the Coen brothers do this very well, is, and why I picked the scene is it's three shots. I, I, there isn't really even a... It's just shot, reverse shot, and then there's a punch-in of the... He's eating some peanuts that he's purchasing. And he eating to me at start the scene, and there's just a punch in. Oh, I love the that. Pla the, when the he, plastic bag, the way that plastic bag is just expanding. There's tension even in that. Exactly, and so it's like the way the scene is shot is super, super simple. I think there's like a teeny tiny slight push. So um, subtle. So super subtle, but basically like when this gas attendant notices the license plate over this character is coming from, he says, oh, you're coming from Dallas. He realizes like, oh, you've, you may have fingered me a little bit. You may have ID'd me or something about it. So maybe, and so then he's, he says, what's the most you've ever lost on a coin toss? And basically he's like, all right, we're going to flip a coin. And he's not telling him what's going to happen, but he's saying like, all right, basically if you get this, we're going to flip a coin. And if you guess wrong what the coin is, like, I'm going to kill you. And that, he doesn't say that to the guy. He's just, yeah, it's more, it's, it's implicit, really. Yes. Yeah. And, of course, the guy... And as an audience, it's not an empty threat because you've seen him, like, take that cattle prong and literally yes. murk people yes. left and right. <laughs> we know this guy's going to be vicious. Yeah. And, and this guy seems intimidated, but so we know what's coming. So you have that kind of dramatic irony, that suspense there. But then he guesses properly to save his life, and then he says at the end, he's like, don't put that coin away, sir. Otherwise, it will become just another coin. Which it is. So he's really just, he's just fucking with him a little bit. Yeah. But that moment at the end, it, it, this is just screenwriting, filmmaking 101. Tension, 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 tension. Comic relief. Yeah. I mean, the Coen brothers do that so well where like, their shit is funny. They're, right. Even, it's incredible. Even like, what, the Blood Simple? Yeah. There's funny moments in that. I mean, they make even Fargo. Comedies. There's yes. definitely funny moments in yes. Fargo. And that combination of thriller comedy tension and also their films are smart because they they put stuff out there and they let you do the work i often have to watch in their films several times to just understand all the little details that are happening in there but i picked that scene because it was very simple all the work is on the page they're standing there it's tiny little performances javier bardem's performance is super subtle he does very little with his face it's very intimate i was thinking about that it was such a bold choice for them um, I wonder how many people were like, really, you're going to cast this guy? Because I, I saw an interview even with Javier Bardem himself. He's like, are you sure you want to cast me? He's like, I, I'm not even that strong in English. And man, did he step up to the plate. And like props to the Coen brothers for really having the vision. Because it's not an on-the-nose casting choice. Like this dude with this Spanish accent playing this part. And it's really a nuanced and specific character which was incredible well i think that i think there's a lesson there it's when you're constructing something especially you're coming out as a writer director you're creating a whole world a whole vision a, a whole story and so everything has to be very carefully put together but sometimes it's important to upset the apple cart a little bit so absolutely sometimes it's important to inject yeah. un not just unsuspecting things but things that aren't on the nose aren't gonna yeah a little left of center that aren't gonna work and then they become unique and then they become 
indelible and then they become part of cinema history because you're making something that is unexpected to people. And if you are communicating with your actors and you they understand what this thing is about and you let them have this freedom to create that character. Because I'm like, Javier Bardem is a very charismatic character. He's been in romances and things like that. Super charismatic. I remember a cousin of mine, my cousin Maria, saw because I think after that he was in Vicky Cristina Barcelona. After that, he was just in a ton of roles. And but I think slightly before that, a few years before that, he was in Michael Mann's Collateral, which was also incredible, but smaller part. But I remember when he was in Vicky Cristina Barcelona, my cousin Maria saw the trailer for that. He's like, oh, that guy's a good looking guy because they made right. him, they made him look so different. Yeah, yeah. With that haircut. It's <laughs> yeah. And not and, attractive. Not, and, it's so not cool. And that's also really cool of him as an actor because he's, he's concerned about the role, not about if he's going to look handsome or not in the role. He's just concerned about, am I going to be this character and I will say, aside from him being one of the most vicious and scariest villains of all time, I will say that he's one of the most motivational characters yeah. to me ever. And people are like, what are you talking about? Think about how persistent his character is yeah. in No Country for Old Men. He's one of the most persistent people on planet Earth. Unstoppable. <laughs> Unstoppable. Yeah. I feel like that's a metaphor for how you have to be as a filmmaker. Not like a psychopath, not just steamrolling everybody in your path. Yeah, you have to be indomitable. I, you have to be you have to be that level of persistence though. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to just since you brought up persistence, I've just been dwelling on the importance of that as a filmmaker lately because you get to a certain point and everybody's really good. You go see films and there are amazing actors in these films. You go to festivals and you're just overwhelmed by the level of talent. So many people can make films and so many people have the tools to do it and they're just getting better and better at it. But if you stop growing and this is a very difficult business to break into. There are only people at the very top. Now, if you can make a living in this business, I think you've won. And yeah. forget about being obsessed with the people. The Golden Globes just happened. Like for, forget about being obsessed with the magazines and fame and who's got who's starting this new production company and, and where all the cloud is persistence is the most important thing in this business and you may not get to where you want to go to you cannot control that path but if you're not persistent you can be damn sure that you will not get there so as a filmmaker i just wanted to pause and say that for anyone who's listening out there if anyone is feeling like that last film they just made was the thing that was supposed to get them to that place that where the dreams are going to come true and it hasn't happened yet Keep making movies. Keep finding a way to love making movies. You will get to that place. Oh, man. Amen, brother. Because that's something I've been thinking about. In the early days, I was like, I'm going to make this, and it's going to get to that, and I'm going to do this. And now I have a totally different philosophy and mentality about filmmaking. I'm like, no, this is the thing. This is the thing that I'm doing. If I'm working on something, I'm going to treat it like it's the last thing and the most important thing that I'm ever going to do. But I'm not looking at it like, hey, this is a stepping stone because I'm right. going to do this to get to that. I'm just going to try to enjoy what I'm doing while I'm doing that I, particular I, thing. Not to be fatalistic, but like this life is a gift and it could end tomorrow. And I'm healthy. God bless. Hopefully you're healthy and we have many years before us. But in the time that I have, I just want to look back and do have done my best work and be like, if I can be buried with one script that I can believe in, if there's one reel that you can bury me with, if there's one 58, gigabyte ProRes file that, you, <laughs> that, that can be put on a thumb drive yeah. as I lay to rest that I can say I did this on this earth and I put myself out there and I did this that's worthwhile because the rest of the stuff is uncertain because the business is crazy but if you don't give up you will get there absolutely so Ben where could uh, people follow along with what you're doing 
Oh my gosh, I'm, I've totally gotten sucked into the gram over the last year. So if you want to slide into my DMs and chat at Benjamin Lawrence Myers, B-E-N-J-A-M-I-N-L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E-M-Y-E-R-S at Benjamin Lawrence Myers on Instagram. You can also check out my stuff, BenjaminLawrenceMyers.com. Like I said, I had this fantastic project, Alone Star Love, that was at Austin Film Festival, but I have this incredible pilot that I'm excited about. It's getting a lot of good attention. We were just at Catalyst Story Institute earlier this year in Minnesota, met some amazing people there. And now I'm in the process of writing the rest of the season and pitching that to studios as well. But if, hey, if this isn't the thing that people think is super awesome and they want to throw money at, I'm still determined to find a way to independently finance it myself. Please, if you're making a project right now and you're trying to figure out how to get off the ground, I've been doing this stuff for 10 years. I've had every job in the book and focusing around. I've done everything from work on political campaigns to shooting at Fashion Week. And as I get more and more focused in my career, I just learned how like all those experiences have brought me where I am today. And now I'm just trying to write as much as possible. I'm trying to work with as many great people as possible. Keep pushing, keep creating opportunities. So please reach out to me. And uh, yeah. Awesome, man. Really enjoyed this conversation. And thanks for being on the film situation. The pleasure is mine. The film situation is a great place to be. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Film Situation Podcast. 